Section 25 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 79. Paris, Sunday, March the 17th, 1680. Though this letter will not go till Wednesday, I cannot help beginning it today to inform you that Monsieur La Rochefoucauld died last night. I am so much engrossed with this misfortune and with the extreme affliction of our poor friend, footnote, Madame de Lafayette, back to main text, that I must relieve my mind by communicating the painful event to you. Yesterday, which was Saturday, the Englishman's medicine had done wonders. All the favourable symptoms of Friday, which I mentioned to you, were increased. His friends began to sing Te Deum in their hearts. His lungs were clear, his head free, his fever less, his evacuations such as indicated a salutary crisis. In this state, yesterday at six o'clock in the evening, he relapsed, so as to leave no hopes of recovery. His fever redoubled in an instant with an impression of the chest and delirium. In a word, he was suffocated by the treacherous gout, and notwithstanding he had a great degree of strength left, even after all his bleeding. It carried him off in less than five hours, so that he expired at midnight in the arms of the Bishop of Condon. Monsieur de Massiac did not leave him a moment. He is under inexpressible affliction. He will find, however, some consolation in the king and the court and so will the rest of the family from the place he enjoys. But when will poor Madame de Lafayette find again such a friend, such a companion, such kindness, such attention, such confidence, and such consideration for her and her son? She is infirm, confined to her room, and not, like other people, eternally from home. Monsieur de Rochefoucauld was also of a sedentary disposition. Their situation rendered them necessary to each other, so that the mutual confidence and delightful friendship that subsisted between them was unequalled. Think of this, my child, and you will be convinced with me that no one could sustain a greater loss, for this is not to be repaired or obliterated even by time. I have never once quitted this disconsolate friend, and she did not mix in the hurry and confusion of the family, so that she really stood in need of some pity. Madame de Coulanges has likewise acquitted herself very well on this occasion, and we shall continue to discharge our duty even at the hazard of our eyes, which are almost always filled with tears. You see how unluckily your letters came. They've hitherto had no admirers but Madame de Coulanges and myself. When the Chevalier returns, he may possibly find a proper season for presenting them. Meantime, you must write one out of condolence to Monsieur de Massiac. He does honour to filial affection and is a living proof that you are not alone in this respect. But in fact, I doubt that either of you will meet with many imitators. 
The melancholy that reigns around me has awakened all my sensibility and makes me feel the anguish of separation in all its horrors. Letter 80, Paris, Wednesday, April the 3rd, 1680. My dear child, poor Monsieur Fouquet is dead. Footnote Gouvy affirms in his memoirs that he was liberated before his death and Voltaire believed it from the account of his daughter-in-law, Madame de Vaux. But Madame de Sévigné believed he died at Pignerol, and so did the public. Mademoiselle de Montpensier confirms the general opinion, back to main text. Monsieur de Fouquet is dead, and I am affected at the intelligence. I never knew so many friends lost in a manner at once, and it overwhelms me with sorrow to see so many dead around me. But what is not around me pierces my heart, and that is the apprehension I suffer from the return of your former disorders. For though you would conceal it from me, I can perceive your flushings, your heaviness and shortness of breath. In short, that flattering interval is now over, and what was thought a cure has turned out a mere palliative. I remember your words, that a flame half quenched is easily revived. The remedies you treasure up against an evil day, and which you reckon infallible, ought to be used immediately. Has Monsieur de Grignon no authority on this occasion? Is he not alarmed at your situation? I have seen young Beaumont. I leave you to guess whether I asked him any questions. When I recollected that he had seen you within a week, he appeared to me the most desirable companion in the world. He said you were not quite so well when he set out as you had been during the winter. He mentioned your supper and entertainment, which he praised highly, as also the kind attentions both of you and of Monsieur de Grignon, and the care Monsieur de Grignon's daughters took that you might not be missed when you retired to rest. He said wonders of Pauline and the little Marquis. I should never have been the first to put an end to the conversation, but he wanted to go to Saint-Germain, for, as he said, he had paid me the first visit, even before that which he owed to the king, his master. His grandfather had the same place which Marshal de Belfort has had. Footnote of steward of the household, back to Van Text. He was a very intimate friend of my father's, and instead of seeking out for relations, as is generally the custom, my father chose him without further ceremony to stand sponsor to his daughter, so that he is my godfather. I am perfectly acquainted with all the family. I think the grandson handsome, extremely handsome. You did well to say nothing to him about your brother. I have myself mentioned it to no one except to such person as my son had previously informed of it in order to find a purchaser. I conclude you must by this time be at Grignon. I see with affliction the bustle of taking leave. I see on your quitting your retirement, which appeared to you so short, a journey to Arles, another fatigue and I see your journey to Grignon, 
where you may possibly be saluted on your arrival by a northeast wind. I cannot behold all these things for a person so delicate as you are, and not tremble. You have sent me an account of Anne Fossey, infinitely preferable to all mine. I do not wonder you cannot think of parting with an estate where there are so many diverting gypsies. It could not be a more agreeable or novel reception. You are indeed so much a stoic and so full of reflections that I should fear joining mine to yours, lest I should double the sorrow. But I think it would be prudent and reasonable and worthy of Monsieur de Grignon's affection to use his utmost endeavours to be here about the beginning of October. There's no other place where you can think of passing the winter. But I will say no more at present. Things urged prematurely lose all their force. They often create disgust. There are no more long journeys talked of here. The only one spoken of is that to Fontainebleau. You will most assuredly have Monsieur de Vendôme with you this year. For my part, I am preparing to set out for Brittany with inexpressible regret. But I must go in order to be there, stay a little while, and return. After the loss of health, which I always with reason place first, nothing gives me so much vexation as the disorder of my private affairs. It is to this cruel reason I sacrifice my ease and gratification, and I leave you to judge what a situation I am likely to be in with so much time and solitude on my hands to add new force to my anxiety at being separated from you. This cup, however, I must swallow, bitter as it is, in hopes of seeing you at my return. For all my movements tend to that point, and however superior I may be to other things, that is always superior to me. It is my fate, and the sufferings that tend my affection for you, being offered to God or a penance due for a love which I ought to bear for him alone. My son is just arrived from Douai, where he commanded the gendarmerie during March. Monsieur de Pompon has spent the day here. He loves, honours and esteems you perfectly. My being resident for you with Madame de Vin occasions my being often with her, and indeed I could not wish to be better anywhere. Poor Madame de Lafayette is now wholly at a loss how to dispose of herself. The loss of Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld has made so terrible a void in her life as to render her a better judge of the value of so precious a friendship. Everyone else will be comforted in time, but she, alas, has nothing to occupy her mind whereas the rest will return to their several avocations. Mademoiselle de Scudery is greatly afflicted with the death of Monsieur Fouquet. That life is at length terminated, which so many pains have been taken to preserve. His illness was convulsions and a constant retching without being able to vomit. I depend on the Chevalier for news, especially what relates to the Dauphiness, 
whose court is composed exactly as you guessed. Your notions are very just. The king is often there, which keeps the crowd somewhat at a distance. Adieu, my dear affectionate child, I love you a thousand times more than I can express. Letter 81 Paris, Friday, April the 12th, 1680 You mention the Dauphiness to me. The Chevalier can tell you more about it than I can. However, I think she does not seem to attach herself much to the Queen. They have been to Versailles together. But on other days they generally make their separate parties. The King frequently visits the Dauphiness in an afternoon when he's sure not to be crowded. She holds her circle from eight in the evening till half after nine. All the rest of the day she is alone, or with her ladies-in-waiting. The Princess of Conti almost always makes one of these private parties, for as she is yet but very young, she stands in need of such a pattern to form her conduct by. The Dauphiness is a miracle of wit, understanding, and good education. She frequently mentions her mother with great affection, and says that she is indebted to her for all the prosperity and happiness she enjoys, by the pains she bestowed on her. She learns music, singing, and dancing. She reads, she works at her needle. In short, she is a complete being. I must own that I had a great curiosity to see her. Accordingly, I went with Madame de Chauvin and Madame de Karma. She was at her toilet when we came in and engaged in a conversation in Italian with the Duc de Nevers. We were presented to her and she received us very politely. It is easy to perceive that if a moment could be found of putting in a word opportunely, it would not be difficult to engage her in conversation. She is fond of Italian, of poetry, of new publications, music and dancing. You see that one need not be long dumb amid such a variety of topics for discourse, but it requires time. She was going to Mass. Neither Madame de Maintenon nor Madame de Richelieu was in her apartment. The court, my dear child, is by no means a place for me. I am past the time of life to wish for any settlement there. If I were young, I would take pleasure in rending myself agreeable to this princess. But what right have I to think of returning there? You see what my views are. As for those of my son, they seem to have become more reasonable. He will make a virtue of necessity and keep his commission quietly. Indeed, it is not an object for anyone to give himself much trouble to gain, though heaven knows it has cost us trouble enough. But the truth is that money is very scarce, and he sees plainly that he must not make a foolish bargain. So, my dear, we must even wait for what providence shall bring forth. Yesterday, the Bishop of Autun pronounced the funeral oration of Madame de Longueville. Footnote, Anne Geneviève de Bourbon, daughter of Henry Bourbon, second of the name Prince of Condé, 
who died a year earlier on the 15th of April, 1679. Back to main text. Pronounced the funeral oration of Madame de Longueville at the Church of the Carmelites, with all the powers and grace that man is capable of. He was no Tartuffe. Footnote. It was imagined at the time that the Bishop of Autun, Gabriel de Roquette, was the person whom Moliere had in view in the character of Tartuffe. We cannot forbear adding an epigram of Boileau's upon him. On dit que l'abbé Roquette prêche les sermons d'autrui. Moi, qui sais qu'il les achète, je soutiens qu'ils sont à lui which may be Englished by a parody on a well-known epigram in our language. The sermons that Roquette pronounces are his. Who'd so have thought them? He swears they're his. Say not he answers, for I know where he bought them. Back to main text. He was no tartuffe, no hypocrite, but a divine of rank, preaching with dignity, and giving an account of that princess's life with all the elegance imaginable, passing lightly over the most delicate parts of it, and dwelling upon, or omitting, all that should or should not be said. His text was these words. Favour is deceitful, and beauty is vain. But a woman that feareth the Lord, she shall be praised. He divided his oration into two parts equally beautiful. He spoke of the charms of a person and of the late wars inimitably. And I need not tell you that the second part, which was taken up with giving an account of her exemplary penitence for the last twenty-seven years of her life, gave him an ample field to expatiate upon the virtues of her mind and to place her in the bosom of her God. Footnote to estimate the skilfulness of the panegyrist, it's proper to know the soil on which he laboured. The life of Madame de Longueville presented the Abbe Roquette with strange, circuitous roads to measure before he brought her to the way of salvation, whither he conducted her. She was one of the three ladies of whom Cardinal de Mazarin said to Don Louis de Aro, We have three, among others, who create greater confusion than arose at the Tower of Babel. Like Madame de Chevreuse and La Palatine, the part she took in the intrigues of the minority of Louis the Fourteenth is notorious. Like them, she united the triumphs of beauty to the success of factions, and the love of business to the love of amours. Voiture represents her as already serious and political when, at an early age, she appeared at the Congress of Münster, where her husband presided over the French embassy. The Fronde began. Her artifices and blandishments seduced the sage Turenne when he came at the head of the Spaniards to give battle to the French. Beloved, not much in the style of a brother, by the Prince de Conti, she made him the chief of the frondeurs and general of the insurgents, thus opposing him to her other brother, the great Condé, who commanded the army of the court. 
It was she who afterward dragged this hero into the civil war and joined him to the Spaniards. She long wandered as a heroine, or, as Cardinal de Retz said, who had himself been her lover, as a fugitive adventurer. She went alternately commanding or intriguing to Holland, Flanders, Dieppe, Stene, Montrond, Bordeaux. In 1649, she reigned in the Hôtel de Ville of Paris and did what no one has ever done before, nor will perhaps do after her. She lay in there. And that, at a time when this hotel served as a palace to the court, as the seat of government and as the headquarters of the army. Two of her lovers, the Count de Coligny and the Duc de Nemours, were killed in a duel. The first fought by her orders in her quarrel and under her inspection. The Duc de la Rochefoucauld, who had long loved her, was betrayed by her, both as a friend and as a lover. When the peace of the Pyrenees had brought back the princess to France, it was found that age prescribed repose to her at the same time that the state of affairs obliged her to it. She endeavoured at first to escape it by forming a party for Bottu's sonnet against Ponserrad, but these little contests of wit were insipid in comparison with those she had been engaged in. Nothing remained for her but devotion, and as a character and a party were always essential to her, she became the protectress of the Jansenists at court, and what is more, mediatrix between them and Rome. For it was Madame de Longueville who, in 1668, mediated the theological transaction which suspended the debates of the formulary, and which was called the Peace of Clement the Ninth. Singular woman, who had the art of making herself conspicuous while working out her salvation, and of saving herself on the same plank from perdition and from ennui. It was asserted at the time that she died for want of food, and there's no doubt she practised the most rigid austerities. Though naturally delicate, says Madame de Maintenon, she never relaxed in the practice of self-denial. There is a life of this lady in two volumes by Villefort, which is said to be well written, back to main text. He, Bishop of Autun, during the funeral oration of Madame de Longueville, took occasion very naturally to praise the king, and the prince was also compelled to digest a great many eulogiums, but as delicately prepared, though in a different manner, as those of Voiture. This hero was present as were the duke, the princess of Conti, and all the family, besides an infinite number of other persons, though in my opinion too few. For I think this respect was at least due to the prince, on occasion of an event he had not yet ceased to lament. You may perhaps ask me how I came there. Madame de Guernigau offered the other day at Monsieur de Chons to take me with her. As it was not inconvenient to me, I was tempted to embrace the offer, and I assure you I did not at all repent having done so. There were a great many women present 
who had as little to do there as myself. Both the prince and the duke paid great attention to all who were there. I saw Madame de Lafayette as we were coming out of the church. She was bathed in tears. It seems that some of Monsieur La Rochefoucauld's handwriting had, by accident, fallen in her way, which had awakened all her sorrows. I had just parted from the Mademoiselles de La Rochefoucauld to the Carmelites, who had been also weeping the loss of their father. The eldest, in particular, equalled Monsieur de Massiac in affectionate sorrow. I really do not think that Madame de Lafayette will ever be comforted. For my part, I am the worst of any of her acquaintance to be with her, but we cannot help indulging ourselves in talking of that worthy man, and the conversation is death to her. She was certainly more deserving of his regard than any of those he had affection for. She has read your little note and thanks you warmly for the manner in which you seem to enter into her grief. I've told you of the reception Madame de Coulanges met with at Saint-Germain. The Dauphiness told her that she already knew her by her letters, that her ladies had also told her a great deal of her wit, and that she wished to judge of it herself. Madame de Coulanges supported her character admirably upon the occasion. Her repartees were brilliant. Sallies of wit flew without number. And in the afternoon... She was invited to be a princess's private party with her three friends. All the ladies of the court would have strangled her. You see, by means of these friends, she gets admittance to a private conversation, but what does all this tend to? She cannot be one of their party in public, nor at table. This spoils the whole. She is fully sensible of the humiliation. It has been these last four days, tasting these pleasures and dissatisfactions. End of section 25